I would like you to join me in Hebrews chapter number 9, where we'll begin at verse 11 in just a moment. Let me remind you that this letter, this book, seems to be generated in 65, early part of 66, during a period when apparently a few Jewish believers in Jesus were toying with the idea that because of the persecution, uh, even the deaths that were going on in Rome and on the Italian peninsula during this time under Nero, that maybe it would be just so much better to slide back into their Jewishness and not talk so much about Jesus. And the writer, who is Jewish himself, says you can't do that. The whole point of the old covenant was the coming of the new covenant. That Jesus is greater than Moses, he's greater than Aaron, he's greater than the Levitical priesthood, he's greater than angels, he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than anything, anyone that has been an intimate and very special part of Jewishness. He's the climax of the prophetic hopes of the Israeli people. And so in the midst of this discussion about Jesus, this presentation of Jesus being greater than everything, he reminds them that the temple was preceded by the tabernacle and that the tabernacle was to have a very specific design to it that God told Moses do everything exactly as you saw it on the mountain. And so these things become symbols of the new covenant, even though they're part of the old covenant. And then the way that these items were used also speaks to the importance of the new covenant. And so Jesus is our high priest. He does not work on planet Earth in the Jewish temple. He actually works in the heavenly temple. And so that's where I want us to pick it up in Hebrews 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. So he is the high priest not of the Levitical priesthood, but of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So when Christ appears as the Melchizedek priest of all of the righteousness we've been talking about, then through the greater and more perfect tent, or tabernacle, place of worship, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, so he's talking about Jesus did his initial high priestly work in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm. Verse 12, he entered once for all. So he's only going to make one sacrifice. One. 
So he entered once for all into the holy places, so into the heavenly realm, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus laid down his life as the atoning sacrifice for sin. This goes back to what John had said of him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus died at just the right moment in all of eternity to provide genuine, true, and effective atonement by means of his death. So he did not do his work as a high priest with the blood of bulls and goats. He did it with his own death, his own life, his own blood. And that is why his salvation is effective and how we must, 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 must stick with him. You can't go back into the sacrifices of the temple. You can't go back into the sacrifices of the tabernacle because all of those things were pointing specifically to what Jesus would eventually do. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, now he's talking about the ceremonies of the Jewish people from the time of Moses onward. Uh, One of the things that they were told to do uh, in uh, their preparations for proper worship and fellowship. Uh, This is in uh, Numbers chapter 19, I think it's when it first pops up, is that they were supposed to make special holy water. I guess that's the best way we can describe it, to be used in cleansing ceremonies. And uh, a major component of this holy water was the ashes of a red heifer. So, a female cow that's never given birth uh, is to be checked to make sure that they are perfect in the sacrificial sense, uh, just like is described in other places, but they also needed to be completely red. That is, uh, no white, no pot patches, no stripes, no socks, Uh, Nothing like that. No tip of the tail. The heifer had to be completely red. Now, that's a rare occurrence, but it does happen. And so they were supposed to be taking a very rare animal, burning it up as a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering, and then from the ashes that came from that sacrifice, they would put it into water, and this would become the cleansing water for um, helping people come out of leprosy or be cleansed from uh, other ailments that would come up from time to time so that they could come back into fellowship with their, their other holy members of the Jewish society, of the Israeli society. So this is the red heifer issue. Now, the red heifer issue has gotten blown way out of proportion now, in my opinion, because there's a whole bunch of both 
Jewish and Christian groups that are convinced that there has to be a new temple built. And in order for the Temple Mount to be cleansed and uh, for a new temple to be dedicated, they have to have the ashes of a red heifer. That's what they're convinced of. Uh, And uh, because they follow rabbinical rules about this red heifer, it's even more restrictive than what you actually see in the texts of Scripture. And so they have a hard time uh, getting any of that together. That be as it may, okay? We need to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying is if the ashes of the red heifer put in water, making it holy and intended for cleansing, if that water could be used to ceremonially move a person from unclean to clean, then, ready? Here comes verse 14, which is the point. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, that's a reference back to the red heifer, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead words, works to serve the living God. So if you think that the red heifer ceremony and the cleansing water ceremonies, if you thought that was good in getting yourself ready as a Jewish person to move into ceremonial purity, then understand that was only symbolic of what really needed to happen. And that is, Jesus needed to die for our sins and be bodily resurrected for our our justification, and that by his atoning death, we can become clean of our sins. We can have our consciences cleaned of guilt because we know that Jesus died for our sin and took it away as far as the east is from the west. And so we are a new person, a holy and clean person. And so that's the point of all of this is keep looking to Jesus. Quit looking at the symbol. Look at the reality. Quit looking at the shadow. Look at the substance. And the substance is Jesus. Verse 15, therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance. So Jesus becomes the go-between between us and God the Father in this new covenant so that all of us who have been called to repent and be saved, we can receive the promise of eternal life, the promise of eternal inheritance, the promise of being in God's presence where he will be our God and we will be his people. And then the writer ties it into Jesus' death again. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
So the people who sinned in the old covenant era are now saved in the new covenant era, not by the sacrifices that they used in the old covenant era, but rather by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. So what was going on in the Jewish world in 65 and early 66 when this book is written is that some Jews were thinking, well, I can always go back into my Judaism and offer the sacrifices in the temple, and then I'm still good with God. And the response of the Hebrew writer is, no, all of those sacrifices pointed to Jesus. You must resort to Jesus or you cannot be saved. You cannot ditch the one who is the atoning sacrifice for sin. Now, verse 16, we're going to use a slightly different idea of covenant. And that is the idea of a will. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, now it's actually the same word as covenant uh, that was uh, just right there uh, in front of us. Um, when a will is put in place, or excuse me, not the same exact word, but the same concept, a, a contract that has been entered into. So where there is a will, where that a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Uh, we would call this probate. Uh, we would call this uh, the idea that you have to present uh, a copy of the death certificate uh, before you can have a will probated. You have to prove the person died. And so that's the idea he's going with here. Uh, before the will of Jesus can be executed. Jesus has to die. Verse 17, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. This is one of the reasons that Jesus tried to explain to his apostles, I have to go away. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit cannot come into your life. Uh, it is better for you that I leave. And when he's talking about leaving here, he's talking about going to the cross and then resurrecting and going back to the Father in the heavenly realm. So the Hebrew writer is saying, Jesus had a will for us, a will that involved us inheriting eternal life and eternal relationship with the Father. But the only way his will could be executed was by his death. Verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So we go back to the Moses situation. Even that involved death and bloodshed. Verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, so he had, um, he had become the mediator 
for the Jewish people, the Israeli people, because that's what they wanted. They begged him, basically, on the day that God was talking directly to them through the Ten Commandments. Please, please, you just go up there and find out what it is he wants from us, and then come back down and tell us, and we'll do it. And so Moses acted in that fashion. He went up and spent first 40 days, and then later another 40 days, and he got everything from God that God wanted the Israeli people to do as part of this covenant. And that included building the tabernacle exactly as Moses had been shown it while he was on the mountain. So when everything was done, uh, right around the anniversary uh, of Israel's departure uh, from Egypt a year previous, they start having dedication ceremonies. And part of the dedication ceremony is the cleansing with blood. Verse 19, when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, that's the water from the red heifer uh, ashes, and scarlet wool and hyssop. Um, The hyssop is acting like the um, handle on a paintbrush, if you will, or a mop brush, uh, while the scarlet wool is acting like the actual mop head itself. Okay, so it gets dipped in the blood and then gets flung uh, to a very specific place. It was just one of the tools of the priests, and it was a tool that Moses used in the dedication ceremony. So when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, along with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So he had written down all of the commandments that God had given him and the plans uh, for the building of the tabernacle. Uh, Moses is the first author of the sacred books. We know this. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of Moses. And so um, Genesis is the history leading up uh, to uh, Israel being in uh, Egypt. And then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers are the three books talking about all of these things that happened in the wilderness. And then eventually we get to Deuteronomy. It's the final uh, sermon of Moses, and it gets written down later. Uh, But the things that the Hebrew writer is talking about here are from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And so they're all written down in scrolls, And it says that he sprinkled that scroll, he sprinkles the book itself and all the people. So he's flinging the water made from the ashes of the red heifer, the blood of the bulls and the goats, the calves and goats. He's flinging it on God's word and he's flinging it on the assembly. Now, not everybody gets splattered. Uh, There's some symbolism uh, involved in this ceremony. Uh, And verse 20, saying, and here we have a quote from Exodus 24, 8. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So he's telling them, 
this was what was required. A death was required. A death of a sinless animal was required in order for you to be made ceremonially clean and capable of entering into this covenant with God. In verse 21, he continues. He says, In the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, that's the tabernacle, and all the vessels used in worship, so all the accoutrements, all the things used in the tabernacle ceremony. Moses splattered them as well with this ceremonially ceremonial blood and water to show someone had to die, an innocent had to die in order for these things to be made holy. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So that's the principle. Where there is sin, death is the penalty. The animal sacrifice system was a symbol put in place by God himself, apparently, uh, to keep the people cognizant of the fact, if you sin, if you're not the one that's going to die, somebody innocent has to die in your place. And so he allowed them to offer animals, perfect animals, as sinless substitutes. But that's not perfect, is it? Because animals are not people. Animals are not made in the image and likeness of God. So it's not a one-for-one equivalency. It's not a one-for-one substitute. Uh, But the principle has been laid down. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hold on to that because he'll get to the point about Jesus again later. This, thus it was necessary for the copies, because remember, the things on planet Earth, the physical tabernacle, uh, the altar of incense, uh, all of that, all of these things are copies of the heavenly things. So thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So where the true forgiveness had to take place was in the spirit world, was in the heavenly realm. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, so not into the earthly tabernacle, not into the earthly temple, which are copies of the true things, but rather into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Uh, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. Now, this is another really important point to make. Jesus only had to die once because his death was universally acceptable for anyone that would put their faith in it. Uh, He died once as God-man so that every human being from before he did this 
and all of those after could put their faith in him and be forgiven. So he doesn't have to keep doing it over and over and over again. Um, And that is why, particularly in the Protestant side of Christianity, you will see an empty cross. Because the atonement was completed once, and then Jesus was resurrected. Uh, In Catholicism, uh, part of their ceremonies um, revolve around the idea that Jesus has to be crucified uh, symbolically and uh, in a um, a supernatural fashion every time the Mass is said by priests. And so their crucifix, uh, their symbol is Jesus is always on the cross. And that's one of the reasons I disagree with that theology. Because here it says, he doesn't have to be offered repeatedly. We don't need to have the Mass always going on. He did it once, and that was sufficient. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. That's on the day of Yom Kippur. It was a repeated event. For then then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, the climax of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time to deal with sin, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus does not have to do the ceremony more than once. That's all it took. And it reaches backward and forward in time. So Jesus came the first time to take care of that. The next time he comes back, at the second coming, when the trumpet sounds, he will save our bodies into the eternal promises that have been made. So those who are uh, dead will be resurrected into their new bodies. Those who are living will be resurrected, or not resurrected, but transformed into their eternal bodies. And as Paul says, we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with him. Because first coming was the sacrifice. The second coming is the redemption of our bodies. And we are eagerly waiting for that event. And I hope you're ready for it, and you're getting people ready for it.